right, so let's get down to business. The top five-ish, maybe 20, maybe 100 technology blunders. Christopher Woodward, how are you today? I am good. I am not a mistake. <laughs> You're not a technological mistake. You you were programmed properly, right? Yes. And and before we, we start with our going back and forth, I think there's an important caveat to throw on this on this whole episode um, and, and our list of what we're going to discuss here. And that's time, because in researching for this episode, I found an article in 2007 that talked about some of the biggest technological you know flops of all time. Mm-hmm. You know what number one? on the list was in 2007 I'm, I'm skimming the research i did i don't have one from 2007 so i'm gonna guess in 2007 they probably said something um i, I don't know of some type of phone voice recognition voice recognition was top of that list wow they said it, it just doesn't work it's not you know it's it's not where there's too many errors people are too uncomfortable Speaking into their devices, um, they had all this array of reasons why speech recognition, voice recognition, just w- w- was a big flop and not working in 2007. Wow! So for that, everything yeah. we list today, there is a possibility that someone will make improvements to and make it not so much of a flop in the future. Well, that, you know, I think that's a given, but you'll have to send that link over. I'd like to put that in the show notes with the uh, resources that I've collected. And I thought you were going to go somewhere different with time because um, I thought you were going to mention something that I experienced that in researching this episode, it, it was a time suck in the best of possible ways. I got absolutely lost in some of these um, selections. So, and we were, uh, when we were off air before the show started, I told you I have, you know, I picked about five or so things to bring up, but I think I have, um, you know, 20 or so fill-ins and substitutes and alternates. Um, Just so many tech blunders, but you have a good point. Things may change in the future. Well, I don't think things may, things will change. It's a question of whether or not some of these uh, current flops will, will actually somehow turn themselves around at some point in the future. Okay, so let's uh, let's get rolling with your first our, our, your first selection. But I, I will ask: Are these in any particular order? These are in no particular order because um, I ended up with like you so many items and different types of items too. I, I have things here that are more consumer based. I have things that really some people may have never even heard of, other than the most ardent uh, tech historians, if you will. Um, but I'm going to kick things off with something that a lot of people know about. And unless you're either a mall cop or doing a tour of uh, Disney properties at 7 in the morning, uh, you probably don't experience. And that's the Segway. <laughs> the, the I had no idea where you were going with me. that until I heard it. And it's like, oh, both of the, the mall cop and the Disney thing both make sense now. The segue to, to say that this was an overhyped release um, is just scratching the surface. What did they say? Uh, it's something like it will reinvent and transform everything about personal transport. Weren't they grandiose like that? Here's the quote. Are you ready for a quote? I'm ready for the quote. The segue will be, quote, as big a deal as the personal computer. You know who said that? Who, who said that? Steve Jobs said that. Um, well, 
that man lost his mind uh, sometime <laughs> in the well, really, sometime in the eighties, uh, possibly the seventies. But yeah, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, we'll let that one go. Because everyone felt, you know, well, number one, it was hyped because of envir- being environmentally friendly. It was hyped because uh, the the belief was that no one would fall off. It was so perfectly balanced that no one would fall off it until, of course, video came out of a woman falling and being trapped under her. Right. Um, It did not meet anywhere near the expectations. The sales were horrible. Several cities and municipalities actually banned segways from being used on on roads and and whatnot. Um, Needless to say, the only place you see a segway now is the aforementioned uh, mall cops, and uh, and occasionally, if you go to Disney and then sign for their early morning tours of mm-hmm. uh, of the parks and whatnot, I believe you still ride a Segway for those. I'll, yeah, I'll, that, I'll still no catch a, um, a manager or supervisor or whatever that position is over at Epcot from time to time. But um, uh, I think that's the only park that they use them uh, during business hours. You know, I remember the environmental claim that Segway had when they first came out. And I just kind of thought, all right, that's great, but... You know, we live in Central Florida, and um, that'd be great if we lived in downtown Tampa or downtown Orlando. Well, I won't say great, but it, the idea could have been great. But, you know, come on. What, what's your commute in to the office uh, uh, when you go in? My, mine's something like 150 round trip miles. Um, yours, is a, yours is what, 90? 90, yeah. Yeah, I'm not taking a Segway 90 or 100 miles. No, I don't think that would be an enjoyable experience. No, especially not in Florida. Rain, lightning, heat, our occasional two days of cold in the winter. So, yeah, no, I think that's a great way to kick it off. Um, If we're ready to transition for a moment, I'll jump into my first one, and I went somewhere drastically different. Um, I'm going to call this. It's going to take some explanation. Sorry, you'll just have to um, put up with a little bit of wordiness. I'm going to call this virtual cyberspace. The idea that everything needs to look like a real-world environment. And I'm almost wanting to pick on the the mid-1990s here, early to mid-90s, because I'm talking about things like the 3D file systems. Uh, When we go to Unix operating systems, SGI, Silicon Graphics, had this thing, and I'm just going to call it a thing, called Fusion. Now, what most people know SGI Fusion as is that cool little Unix operating system from the original Jurassic Park movie. You remember when they're sitting in the control room and um, the girl's like, oh, it's a Unix system. I know how to do this. And she's flying like, uh, you know, uh, not literally or not with an avatar, but the screen looks like you're flying from building to building and it's really file to file. That idea of needing to translate everything to physical space, everything from the virtual world that is to physical space I think is one of the biggest tech blunders. And to solidify it a little bit more, if you remember things like Microsoft Bob or the predominance of what were called VRML, V-R-M-L, Virtual Reality Modeling Language websites, where you'd go in and everything would be like a room instead of a instead of a site like a brochure or a page or a book, you'd feel like you're in a room. And uh, I think another high-profile example is Nintendo's Virtual Boy. Bottom line, I think I can sum this up with pushing too hard, too fast to make everything a virtualized geospatial location. Um, it was a flop then. It's 
kind of a flop now. We have virtual reality and augmented reality around the corner, but the thing is, we've finally gotten, I hope, we've finally gotten rid of this need to take everything and make it feel like a physical location. Wow. What, was that too much of a rant? No, that was impressive. (laughs) I mean, do you remember remember that scene in the original Jurassic Park with the operating system I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. And it's funny because I always think that, uh, especially with a lot of the sci-fi and action movies today and some of the the technology, quote-unquote, they're using now, and you know, is that really going to work that way? Because I'm not sure if people really are going to want those technologies. Well, right. You, you want to fly around, uh, again, so to speak, air quotes there. You want to fly around your, your operating system files until you realize it takes forever. And then you have to remember where you put the file. Like in a geospatial space, you can't just, I mean, you could just search for it, but then why fly around? Um you know, same type of story when I referenced Microsoft Bob from 1995. You know, you log into your computer and you see this bitmap image, this sort of clip art looking thing of a room. And you're clicking on the calendar on the wall to go to calendar and you're clicking on, you know, here and there. And I just, you know, I, I really think when we, thousands of years ago when we switched to paper and papyrus and all of these different things, I don't think anyone sat down and said, okay, how can I make what's on this paper look like, you know, some type of a maze or some type of um, uh, some type of a city? You know, we that's why. why? And th- that's where I'm at with it. Just why? Imagination. It's an incredible thing. Yeah. Video game makes sense. But that's uh, I'll get yeah, off video my game it does. And a lot of times some technologies, you go, you know, that, that it's better for a game than it is for practical uses. Not that a game mm-hmm. isn't practical, but you know what I'm saying. Well, all I know is in Finder or uh, uh, File Explorer, I can just sort alphabetically and find my file. I don't want to lose my uh, files like I lose my keys and forget where I put it in some... I don't want to have to... I'll put it this way. I don't want to have to walk around Minecraft in order to open my business documents. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm picturing you walking through Minecraft. I mean, picture it. I, that's that's what I that's how stupid I feel it is. Forget the blocky characters. Just put me right in the middle of Minecraft, fumbling around looking for my lost uh, sheep, which is you know my my newest business document or something. There was a movie I, I, I forget the name of it. And I'm sure somebody will. But it was a movie I think with Michael Douglas and Demi Moore or something where he's he's walking around his virtual filing room, <laughs> and then all of a sudden her face appears looking for the document so he hides behind the virtual filing cabinet in oh, the God. virtual world and, you know, just... I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look this up this um you know someone out there is probably thinking exactly what it is and shouting at the speakers but if you know send that in I want to I want to watch that it just it was so utterly ridiculous to see but uh so are you re- are you ready for my, my oh, yeah. next item yeah, you've got to get me off of this soapbox I'll go on about that all day so I'm going to take you back in time to the mid-80s. Ooh, let's go. And we're going to go music technology right now. So in the mid-80s, you really had three options for your music. You had the classic vinyl record, which, while audiophiles will praise the warmth and quality, for the <laughs> active lifestyle of so many of us, doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not good for carrying around. So you had the cassette tape, which was portable. Uh, but you dealt with compression issues in, in the actual audio quality. And then in around 1983, you had the compact disc kind of emerging. Well, 
right around the time of the compact disc starting to emerge came the idea of digital audio tape, DAT tape. Ooh. Uh, and DAT tape was being developed by Sony and Philips. The idea was that this was going to be the next big thing in music, with mm-hmm. the idea being that while it was similar to your traditional audio cassette tape, it was digital, didn't use compression. Hmm. And on top of that, actually had at the time, remember I'm talking about mid-80s here, at the time, a higher sampling rate than CDs had. Wow. So this was a good idea, but it ran into two big brick walls. One was the classic case of competition. CDs were also introduced around 1983. Uh, They got embraced by customers, consumers and whatnot very quickly. Uh, And of course, the fact that a digital audio tape to, to the naked eye looked the same as a regular audio cassette, it was mm-hmm. hard to convince people that, well, it's a tape, but it's better than the tape you've been using, whereas the CD, of course, visually very different. And so, very futuristic looking at the time, too, all the light reflection and that it was clear plastic. I mean, I remember the sentiment was of how futuristic it looked. So that definitely attributed to people kind of leaning towards that. The other issue, and many people are going to chuckle and laugh at this now, um, the recording industry was very worried because if people took a blank DAT tape, which is what Sony and Philips were looking to market, they would be able to make near-perfect digital copies of recorded mm-hmm. music. That's this a really is the good reason point. why, in 1992, Congress actually passed the whole Audio Home Recording Act, uh, which basically said that DAT tapes really couldn't be sold on a consumer market as blanks. It had to be pre-recorded. It had to have very strong copy guards on it. It also required that anyone, anyone who purchased that recording equipment had to pay royalties to the recording industry. Wow. And that was collected through the vendors. So if you were trying to sell a DAT mixer or a DAT recorder, you had to charge more because you then had to pay royalties back to the recording industry. Huge stumbling block. The only people that ended up using that tapes, funny enough, recording studios. <laughs> recording studios used that tapes for a time due to the high quality of them. But needless to say, between the emergence of CDs, the roadblocks, and then, of course, the Audio Home Recording Act, that tapes used by professionals for a while never even came close to becoming something that consumers used regularly. You know, and I, I of course know about that tapes because tape, quite frankly, is, is not a bad technology. Um, it's still, still being phased out in computing, especially in, in um, larger, older data centers with legacy data. Um, but the idea of, uh, you know, non-compressed, uh, high sample rate, digital tape in the 1980s would be very technologically forward thinking. Uh, and it'd be inter- it would be uh, quite interesting to go back and see how much money went from uh, you know the music industry to uh, towards CDs and away from that because of all the reasons you described. But because of course CDs didn't at the time have the easy duplication, uh, the ability for easy duplication rather. So that is a really uh, fascinating thing, and I just I never knew that whole. Um, really never knew the whole story there. 
Yeah, well, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Now I want digital tape with, uh, you know, FLAC files on it or something just to be, um, oh, what is it, they, something like future retro? What is it they call it, The kind of the idea of the future that never happened? Yeah, it's an alternate reality. Kind of the steampunk type thing, but not antiquated. Well, I guess it is antiquated. I don't know. I'm at a loss today. I got some really good antiquated stuff coming up on my list next, but but now it's your turn. Well, but, but as I transition, I'll say that on my um, on my contenders list of things that didn't quite make it in, I had Betamax and HD DVD, and um, really the one I wanted to focus on, if I had brought it up, was CEDs, things like Selectivision, which were basically, you know, one or two foot wide micro floppy disks with you know the the floppy digital disk inside, but a hard outer shell. Uh, you know, I just remember as a kid having to hold these things with two hands and put it in the drive. Um, there were a lot of formats that could have been, probably should have been, but because of timing, lobbying, and other factors, just never came to be. Um, yeah, I'm going to go to a, a real low blow for my second. Um, this one hurts for me. I'm going to pick on Microsoft's mobile strategy. One of the biggest tech blunders, I think, is Microsoft completely failing to understand how mobile and touch would evolve. And we can talk about this going back to 2007, 2008. But as someone who's followed uh, personal computing and other parts of the tech space for much longer than that, I'll tell you the lack of vision was present even during the days of Windows 95. When we first saw things like Palm top computers, which by the way are also on my honorable mention list. Uh, palm top computers and these early PDAs and uh, mobile devices. The general consensus was from Microsoft, well, you know, Windows 95 is doing really well. Let's shrink it down, put a start button uh, in the lower left, uh, or occasionally I think uh, there was a version where it was upper left, doesn't matter. But let's shrink this thing down and go forward with it with a stylus and a touch screen or, you know, arrow keys or whatever. You know, the problem is it just never worked. Um, people didn't want the same type of interface on their mobile devices. And you get this entire mess up from 1990, let's say, 5 or 6 onward, really culminating um, around 2007 when the iPhone launched. Windows Mobile 6 um, was quite a mess. And then they, Microsoft started playing catch-up, coming up with these crazy ideas of, all right, let's get rid of the Today screen and let's put these hexagon tiles in and all this funky stuff just to try to play catch-up, which then ultimately led to Windows Phone. Now, I am a Windows Phone user. This is why this one hurts so much. And a lot of people love the the square and rectangular tiles and, and the live tile updates. And uh, admittedly, that's why I do use the current version of Windows Mobile. But the mismanagement from shrinking down the Windows 95 interface to updating it haphazardly with the Windows Mobile 6 time frame. The uh, launch of Windows Phone without any software support and cutting out business features, which was the one saving grace of the platform. The acquisition of Nokia's Lumia line, which Nokia had made a complete blunder of before, and the modern considerations, even today in 2016, like the App Gap, where there are virtually... Uh, no mainstream supported apps from third party, um, except for the really, really big providers and the really, really small providers. The app uh, store is just not on par with any other mobile offering. So I, I have to take this whole situation from 1995 to 2016 
and wrap it up in one giant tech blunder that has cost Microsoft billions of dollars and their shareholders, and that is Microsoft's mobile strategy. Wow. That one hurts. Okay. Do, do you need a moment? Because I know how difficult that was I'm for you. taking a drink of my jasmine tea and trying to just go to my zen place right now. Uh, since it's pile up on Microsoft time, Ooh, I'm going to pull one of the Microsoft items off my blunder list. So we can just make sure this episode will not be sponsored by Microsoft. <laughs> and no, I'm not talking about Windows Vista. I know everybody's expecting that one, but no. Instead, I'm going to go with an item that most people maybe don't even know existed. Back in 2004, uh, really quite a bit ahead of its time in some ways, but Microsoft introduced the smart personal objects technology watch the hmm. spot watch um it, it was actually a whole line of smart appliances but the watch is the one that they really kind of pushed at the forefront of the campaign right uh, the idea in 2004 again of uh this microsoft spot watch was that it would receive handy little bits of information weather data you get gps updates things like that However, it was using FM radio signals, mm -hmm. and as a result, they were very limited in bandwidth as far as how much data they could actually beam to the watch. So the watch more or less was only kind of like a gimmick. It was like, oh, it's a watch that tells the weather pretty much. Right. Um, obviously, now with, with our mobile devices, our wearable technology, uh, you know, a little over a decade later being so much more advanced – um, you know, again, you could you could argue that the spot watch was kind of the, 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 the forefather of what we have now. But at the time it came out and just kind of felt flat on its face as, ooh, cool watch. And then didn't really work out too well. Yeah, you know, I remember that one. I, I didn't think of it for this list, but I, I do remember that was just after Microsoft and HP started releasing the original tablet computers, which in today's parlance we know as convertibles, where the laptop screen just rotates around and flips back. Right after that, Microsoft started moving into these wearables and also into car entertainment systems with their Windows Embedded platform, which ties back in to the mobile strategy. And uh, Windows... Um, Windows-powered audio systems for cars, uh, I think Pioneer was a major um, uh, manufacturer of these, they used that FM signal uh, to get traffic updates as well. And so I remember the first time I got a, an in-dash entertainment center that had traffic, and because I knew about the Microsoft system and the FM radio, uh, I forget what they called it, there was a, a name for that service, uh, because I knew about that, I was so just gobstopped that I had to pay for traffic updates for an in-dash entertainment center and that I had to pay for things like, um, um, you know, Sirius XM radio because here I am living in this delusional world of Microsoft sending all these updates over FM broadcast frequencies and, um, you know, HD radio coming out at about that time or a little bit later, actually. Um, but that, uh, you know, I really think that I almost view that as a, a failed opportunity more than a blunder. But the watch, the wearable itself, I'm with you 100%. That's That was a blunder. Definite blunder time. So sorry, Microsoft. You're kind of getting it. Well, right let's now. see. Don't worry. Don't worry. Apple will get their shots. So far, uh, so far with Microsoft, let's see. We've mentioned Microsoft Bob, their mobile strategy and everything that's in included. These bot watch, uh, tablets, Vista. And, oh, we can't forget 
uh, Windows Millennium Edition. That's not my next one, but if we're if we're you know going to dig on Vista a little bit, got to throw ME in there as well. We could probably take Vista ME. Just maybe we could just call it unnecessary operating system changes. Right. Well, it's it's like the uh, Star Trek movies. We don't talk about the odd numbers. <laughs> Skip the odds. I like that actually. All right, so I'm going to go to the my third one here. I hope my audio is doing okay. I keep cutting out in my own uh, in-ear monitors. But my third choice, and I have to put this right in the middle of my list, Web TV. Ah, Web TV. That was on my list, actually. Really? So. Good. Good. Now, am I taking it from you, or was it on a backup? Go, go right ahead. Let's talk Web TV. Okay, so we share this one. Um, I, I'll start with the fact that I think it was ahead of its time. But, uh, I mean, before I even go into the but, we see Samsung and LG and Sony and all these other television manufacturers have browsers and you can pull up websites and you have, um, you know, smart TVs with applications. So that's what I mean by ahead of its time. Here's the but. It had too much in terms of cool technology of being able to have a browser and an internet connection, but it also had too little at the same time. And I'm going to dig into this in just a moment, but primarily the fact that it was a set-top box. So having too much and too little, having your product design off-mark uh, is the spirit of what I'm trying to get to here. When that happens, you're inevitably going to put a poor monetization uh, system in place. So how Web TV was monetized was not only the sell of the device, the sale of the device, but also through it was roughly I think a twenty dollar, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollar subscription fee per month and you'd access just like you would on a normal computer through a telephone line um, at the time dial-up modem so you'd need a preferably a dedicated telephone line um, although you know how many of us actually did that um, so you needed your telephone line to be tied up and then you're paying this monthly subscription fee that wasn't also good to connect your computer if you happen to have one so the monetization was off and, and here's what I mean about the too much and too little, and I, I said I'd come back to the set-top box idea. Let me give you a hypothetical, Christopher. Are you willing to play a game with me here? Sure. All right. So we have two methods of accomplishing something. We'll call them method A and method B. I'm going to have you pick one of these methods uh, based on a scenario. Ready? Ready. Okay. So method A is 30 years old and has promised a, some outcome. We don't know what that outcome is, but it's promised this outcome over and over again, but it's always failed. Method B is only five years old, promises deliver the outcome, doesn't do it, but can do a limited portion of the outcome. My question is, which method do you pick, A or B? Well, if A has never delivered at all repeatedly, and B delivered a little and is younger, I would go with B. Right. Naturally, we're going to go with B. So let me go back and, and, and indicate why this makes sense. Option A is cable and their set-top boxes. Promising an interactive future for 30 years at that point. Of we'll get, I'm sure we had um, pay-per-view, but we hadn't gone to a video-on-demand system. We didn't have on-demand information. You still had to tune into the Weather Channel to the TV Guide channel and wait for the information to be presented even after 30 years of promises. Meanwhile, method B here um, consists of web-connected PCs. 
you know, the, the web uh, comes out for commercialization in 1991. We're talking about 95, 96 when web TV launches. I'm going with method B here, which is the PC, not yet another set-top box. So I, I don't think that web TV had a bad vision of what the future would hold. Televisions that are connected to the internet. Boom, got it. We all agree. I think it was too quick um, relying on monetization and product specs and, and all of the things that existed at the time and not enough forward thinking. And then Microsoft spent, what, $125 million to buy the idea? Microsoft's really having a rough day. Turned it into MSN TV and just to buy, I don't know what year it was in the 2000s. It just it was dead. Yeah. yeah. You know, I... I remembering that I don't want to be apologetic for Microsoft, but even at the time, I never felt like the acquisition of Web TV was some forward-thinking. Um, since that seems to be my term of the day, I don't think that's what they were trying to do. I I, I always felt, and maybe I could be wrong. Um, it'd be interesting to know the people who worked um for Microsoft as a part of this team, or, or who were acquired from Web TV. But I always felt like they bought it because there was a small established base, and Microsoft viewed that as a way to continue those MSN services to really the, um, you know, the John Q public, which MSN has always been targeted towards. Try to think if we should do another Microsoft or if maybe we, I, I should blast Apple now with something. Yeah. Well, um, you, your pick completely, uh, you know, I'm not going to be targeting Apple in my top five. They're in my, uh, they're in my uh, backups list, but uh, they're there. All right, you know, I think, um, okay, I'm going I'm to pull this one out. So imagine you're Apple, right? You're Apple, and it's the late 70s, mm -hmm. and Jobs and Wozniak are, are living large, and, and Apple II has, has created an empire for you. Mm -hmm. Millions so, of U.S. school kids sitting in front of Apple IIe's playing, you know, Oregon Trail or whatever it was. Apple II is just, you know, Forrest Gump got all that stock money because of Apple II, remember? Right. So Apple II is huge. Everything's going great. So the next logical step, of course, was Apple III. And Apple III was going to be the ultimate business machine. Well, here was the problem with Apple III. Apple III, according to and Wozniak himself, called it, a 100% failure because every single Apple III machine had to be repaired. Hmm. Why? Huge miscalculation that will blow your mind. Guess what the Apple III was missing? Do you know what the Apple III was missing? You, you know, remember I, this? I actually don't remember this. The Apple III was missing air vents. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was no fans or ever. This is a that, Steve Jobs idea. I was about to say that has, has Steve Jobs written all over it. This is what happened. Basically, they wanted this to be a business computer. I mean, so did they? Put, so they didn't put any fans in it at all. It's not like was there an internal fan? Do you know, or was there just no, no zero, no wow. fans, no air vents? Because way too ahead of his time on that. Steve Jobs' thought was, this is going to be a business computer. People are going to have three or four or five or six of them in an office. You don't want them to be noisy. So You no also fans, want them to work. No fans. It'll be fine. As a result, 
Okay. And, and, and we should also point out here the the case of this was actually made of, of aluminum. Oh, my God. No, no. The idea being to dissipate <laughs> the heat. What was the problem was oh. they hadn't figured out here the fact that the Apple three between the aluminum, the no fan, the air vents, this logic board basically overheated mm-hmm. in every single one. Yeah. So the screen would then go crazy on you. Um, sometimes, you know, solder would melt inside you know the chips chips were literally falling out of their sockets due to the heat melting down the solder in this um you could put a floppy disk in it sometimes the floppy disks were literally getting fried or baked i guess inside the computer come out all dripping and everything that'd be wonderful are you ready for what apple's solution was i i'm i'm so bought into this story right now keep going Apple would suggest to some people that they should, if the if the chips were, were falling out, ready for this, lift the machine three inches and drop it oh so God. the chips would fall back into their <laughs> sockets. <laughs> oh, I won't admit to having done that with the MacBook Pro, but that's a different story. This is the classic, that you know, your, your, your grandfather or great-grandfather you know, the TV's not working. Let me smack, smack the side it. of it. Let me shake it a little bit. It'll work now. Wow. You know, I'm I'm so glad you put that on there because I, it, that's one of the the Apple products I never think about, and I never, uh, just like your story before, I uh, never knew the full story of. So you're 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 really you're really giving me a good education today. I did have things like the Lisa and the Pippin and the Cube and even the newest Mac Pro. Um, on my uh, sort of on my backup list as I keep calling it. So I think the story we're we're taking away from this is um one you know Steve Jobs never should have worked on hardware and two Apple doesn't have the best track record of hardware whether uh Steve Jobs was involved or not. It was and this is remember 1980 numbers now 1980 dollars it was a 60 million dollar flop. That's painful. And the fact that Apple had to fix every single one. Now, you know what I don't know? I, I, my Apple history is a little bit clouded. Is that what replaced the Lisa when the Lisa didn't work? Or no, the Macintosh replaced Lisa. So that yeah, would have Macintosh been. Macintosh replaced Lisa. This was, that this would have been before the, the Lisa. This was the next evolution off the two with the idea they wanted to make it even more business friendly. Well, you know, you had to go after IBM at that time if you're Apple. I mean, we can talk about the PC Junior and other stuff that oh, Apple God. did too. But to me, of all of the Apple, P- well, PC Junior was IBM that Apple was going after. Oh, PC Junior, um, of all of the Apple bombs, to me, the Apple Three, honestly, other than the US Festival, <laughs> um, I, I think Wozniak lost more money on this than anything else in his life. And uh, honestly, it's amazing that this didn't sink Apple entirely. That that is. I mean, that shows how new and um, resilient the industry was to some degree. Um, but, you know, Apple had already been an established player. And I think if they weren't the dominant established player and the only one around at that time as IBM was coming in, which what did it take? One month, I think, for IBM to top their sale, Apple's sales. Um, had it not been that exact condition, I think you're right. Apple would have been gone um, well before their other bankruptcy scare. And we didn't even talk about. I mean, we can talk about Apple Mouses too. You know, oh, hockey no, puck, mighty mouse. And Apple mice like have always been horrible. Oh, 
I've never used, I'm being honest, I've never used an Apple mouse, even though I've been given one several times for free. Yep. Always chose, I would rather use a touchpad or I'd rather take a Microsoft mouse and install yeah. that in, into my Apple products. You know, um, I always use HP or, or uh, Logitech or something like that as well. I, I do get picked on a little bit. You know, you and other people call me a fanboy, even though I, I swear I'm not. Uh, I, I have switched over to using Microsoft input devices. I really like their mice and keyboards. Um, so I'm I'm with you there. And even on a MacBook, uh, even on um, really any anything, I'm I'm typically sporting uh, Microsoft or Logitech input devices. Um, All right, you want to go back to your list now? Yeah, yeah, I've got to go to um, sort of a time. Well, not time sensitive. A long evolving failure from Google. I'm going to just state this and I'm not going to do a big uh, intro to it or a big explanation. I'm just going to say that Google Plus has failed and it failed almost immediately after launch. But just go like I went back with the, the, you know, mobile strategy that Microsoft has. Google's social strategy has failed time and time again. Whether it's Google Buzz, which had some following at least, this was sort of like a, um, a geocentric Twitter equivalent. If you remember back to Google Buzz, it was uh, short microblog posts like Twitter, but that were um, organized primarily by location. Um, whether we talk about Buzz, which was shut down, uh, whether we talk about some of the collaboration tools that Google has had, such as Wave. I think it was one of the most forward-thinking innovation, uh, innovation-laden um, social media and communication tools and productivity tools of its time. Uh, bottom line, Google's just not good at social. You are one hundred percent correct. I remember when when Google Plus came out, and you know they were gonna they were gonna replace Facebook. And right. I remember some people getting so excited about going, "Oh, I can't wait! I'm gonna ditch Facebook and I'm gonna go." Go with Google Plus, and I'm a big fan of. Obviously, Google has dominated you know the search engine world for a long time now, and I'm a big fan of Google Drive mm-hmm. for you know collaboration and, and projects and whatnot. But you're right when it comes to social. When I can't talk you into Office 365, from from well maybe from the beginning, <laughs> from the beginning, right. Google Plus just it sucked. It, it it was so not user friendly. Yeah, go and, in and add everybody, and then you have to manage them into the circles and blah 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 blah. It's like I don't want to do data entry work. And who goes in which circle? And the circles do this, and and just everything about it. And can I overlap my circles? And oh, so horrible. And again, the one of the reasons why Facebook and Twitter, you know, obviously are so successful. User friendly, ease of use, Absolutely. ease of, and and a big one too, ease of mobile use, and Google Plus, like you said, did it. it Google Plus felt like work, and it, people don't want work with their social platform. I'm glad I'm. You know, I put that out there, f- feeling like you may pick on me for saying that, but I did always have that. I always had that feeling. I felt like I was working. You know, sometimes when you're on Twitter or Facebook for business, you are having to actively work. You're removing yourself from groups that people add you to. You're managing the groups that you run. You're organizing lists on Twitter. There is an amount of work that's involved with social media, um, you know, unless you're just kicking back, connecting with friends and family. Google Plus always, 
even even to this day when I stupidly try to go see what's going on on that network, which I don't know why it's not shut down, but it feels like I'm at work. And so I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Uh, absolutely. And again, it, it, when it comes to certain things, you know, people don't mind putting in work if they feel they're getting something out of it. I also think for a lot of people, they looked at Google Plus and they didn't see any, any end game. They didn't see any reward for putting work into it. No, yeah, and so what happened was I had used some of the previous Google services um, like Buzz. I really, I, I really kind of liked it. And um, so what happens is you take Buzz and you take um, Wave and you take Orkut, which uh, Google had acquired, and, and you put, um, I believe they acquired, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I never really used Orkut. Um, but anyway, you take all these Google properties and then you hype this thing up and so when it doesn't pan out, I mean, I, I I sort of feel like, well, you replace things that were moderately working with something that ended up not working. I, I guess I have the question of when do you either pull the plug or try something new, right? I feel like they've stuck with the weakest of all of their iterations for the longest period of time. But, you know, like I said, that's really all I have to say about Google+. Plus. I just, I, I, I really look at it as a public humiliation, Um that okay so public humiliation in the tech sector isn't that bad it happens all the time but it it really makes me question some of their management practices of why would you you know what's the interest of keeping this thing going or not innovating upon it to i don't know steer it into some niche at least great uh it's and honestly google i'm sure is going to try to get improved google plus they're not giving up on it but at this point, I think I trains left the station and nobody wanted to get on board. Yeah, and, and that innovation just doesn't seem to be happening. So if they promise it, that's one thing, but I don't even see a promise of it. Uh, so we're up to oh, – no, that was mine, right? No, that was, no, that that was, was mine, your, yeah. So, so I'm going to take us away from, from Google and Microsoft, from the big tech companies for a minute. I'm going to go to to a retailer who is now out of business. <laughs> And uh, this is this is only one reason why they're out of business. Mm-hmm. So uh, imagine we're in the 1990s. I'm with you. We don't have our, our ways of watching movies. Are we have pay per view? Some video on demand services are starting to spring up a little bit. Uh, we have DVDs, you know, rentals, whatnot. Blockbuster is king at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Netflix and downloadable movies and streaming not not happening yet. All right, so Circuit City. Oh, there you go. Which was an electronics retailer had this idea for uh, it. It was similar to a DVD. It was called DIVX. Yeah. Not not to be confused for not, you for you video people out there. I'm not talking about the Kodak. Not DivX. Not DivX. Right. This is a this is a DVD alternative called DIVX. The IVX, with the idea being that you would, you would get this movie from Circuit City, you would, you would, I guess, rent it if you will, and you could take the disc, and from the first time you started watching it, you would have forty-eight hours to complete or to watch over and over again this movie, and when you were done, you either threw it away, I guess, or you could recycle it, Hopefully. or you could pay another fee to continue viewing the film. The idea here is that the prices were supposed to be competitive with video store rentals, but you didn't have to return it. So the idea is that instead of renting a DVD for Blockbuster, which you had to return in two days, this idea was you rent it or purchase the disc, 
And then as soon as you start watching it, which could be a week later, but as soon as you start watching it, you have two days of quote-unquote rental, and then you can toss it. Now, of course, you need a DIBX player, Mm -hmm. which Circuit City would also be more than... They were glad to sell those to you. Um, So hardware vendors um, were not really into this idea because... Um, the DVD format obviously was gaining a lot of traction um, and we're not interested in offering a competing kind of player that only worked with this kind of disc. Uh, the video rental industry, obviously uh, blockbuster and whatnot would turn around and go, Hey, DVDs, this is the quality. This is the format. Don't go with DIVX. Um, and honestly, uh, DIVX, died pretty quickly uh I, the dates i have here is that it launched in 1998 um and by the start of 2000 it was pretty much gone uh and circuit city um and vendors pretty much offered uh a hundred dollar buyback to people that had a divx <laughs> standalone player yeah i just i mean i always thought the whole thing was ludicrous so you're essentially renting a movie that you throw away the physical media and I, if I remember, they were about $4 a pop. If yeah, you wanted to then, at the end of that 48-hour period, if you wanted to watch again, you paid like another 3 4 $5, and you got another couple of days. And some of them had the option to pay a larger amount and let the disc continue to work forever. I mean, That this- was actually towards, at the beginning, it was only those short terms. Mm-hmm. And then when they saw how it was flopping, um, no, no pun intended. The disc was flopping. Um, <laughs> they instead offered this, you know, lifetime purchase, which, funny enough, ended up being the same price as if you just purchased a DVD. Yeah, I mean, just such a bad idea. Uh, so having to run a proprietary format, having to run the DRM system on top of that, which comes with security and encryption concerns of staying on top of, uh, you know, ahead of piracy, um, then having to switch an entire industry over to that format and being the sole retailer and and i mean just oh my from a management point of view you just you kind of wish you were there to see the decision making process just so you can create a case study and say see kids this is where businesses go wrong and this was one of several reasons why there's no more circuit cities anymore yeah, so i was laughing so much when you started that one because i i couldn't tell i had on my backup list, I was hoping you would go to one of these too. I had Circuit City and Blockbuster. And with your intro, I couldn't tell which way you were going. And I, when you mentioned video, I was for sure you were going with Blockbuster, which interestingly enough, Blockbuster attempted to acquire Circuit City towards the end of both companies' um, uh, histories uh, and existence in their prime form. Uh, but then you switch to Circuit City and it just, oh, I, the the internal joy I felt of being able to hear someone rip on them, just, yeah, I was giddy. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to decide, well, you know, I'm going to let you go next because uh, I've got c- quite a few good ones still here to uh, to talk about. Good. Um, I'm going to put, this is my, my fifth choice here, and uh, it's also short, sweet, and to the point. I'm going to say that one of the biggest tech blunders uh, currently or over the past, let's say, decade or two, and I'm going to have a big caveat on this one later, but to this point, a major tech blunder has been, are you ready? Mm-hmm. The Chinese space program. Ooh, interesting one. Yeah. So the caveat, let me jump to that before I even explain 
uh, what led me to this decision. The caveat is they're going to get better. They're going to work these problems out. Um, and so I think that when we look at situations such as resource rights on the moon and on Mars and on asteroids with the U.S. government starting to give mining permits for asteroids now, uh, sort of as an aspirational carrot to dangle out there in front of private ventures, uh, I, I see this as being a major source of, of future political conflict and global conflict. Um, you know, maybe not war, but we're talking legal sanctions and, and all sorts of negotiations. But the program so far has not been stellar. Back in 2009, their first attempt to land a probe on the moon uh, just crashed straight into the surface. And while the United States and Russia had many similar experiences and situations uh, back in the 1950s and uh, even into the 60s and and 70s as we refined a lot of our rocketry, China had the benefit of doing this in 2009. So when we see private American entrepreneurs being able to start space companies and uh, aerodynamics companies and use the previous research that's pretty well accessible globally, there really wasn't much excuse for this 2009 crash and some of the rockets um, failures that they've had. And um, more recently, what's brought this into my mind is the story that their their space lab that they put up for a two-year mission a couple years back, um, the rumors are that they've lost control of it and that it will, uh, you know, we'll say crash back to Earth. It'll burn up on reentry with the possibility of some things making it through. And it's just as every single time you hear about the space uh, program out of China, as a Westerner, it seems to be yet more bad news. You know, countries like North Korea have an excuse for being bad at rocketry. Nobody wants to give them information. But the Chinese, they don't quite have that excuse. Well, um, who knows? Maybe as they embrace a a free market economy more and more, maybe someday they'll get it right. Yeah, you know, and and they're still, it seems like they're still committed to putting putting people back on the moon in the 2020s and establishing a colony there. Um, We'll we'll see how far that goes. But um, again, I do think they'll get better. I don't think this is a point of embarrassment that will uh, continue in the future. I think, I honestly think that the Chinese space program has the possibility of doing some amazing, impressive things, maybe even setting some uh, firsts for the for the Earth. But um, to this point, it's it's been pretty rough. So for the next one on my list, and uh, I'm going to go in a totally different direction than we normally do here. I'm going to go in a financial direction with something that has succeeded in some ways, but some people are still feeling the effects of it not succeeding. Um, So this is going to be kind of a weird entry for it. I want to talk about websites in the late 90s. (laughs) You're going to have to give me more than that. My brain is all over the place right now. Everybody wants to talk about, the, you know, or, or in history, we always go back to, to the internet boom mm-hmm. and the chaos it, it, it wrecked on everything. So, so allow me to explain, because obviously websites are very successful. You're listening to this off a website right now. But in the late 90s, we had this period where everyone figured they were going to get rich off of the internet. Right. What, you, what saw, you mean not everybody's going to get rich off of the internet? We saw All right, a, cancel the a, show. A plethora, a plethora 
one after the other after the other of these poorly thought out dot com companies. Mm-hmm. Let's most see. Most of them. Flues, of pets. Them, oh, pets.com. Yeah. Pets.com. A little sock, the puppet. sock puppets. Yeah. <laughs> these were what what happened here was you saw essentially people with a large amount of money that they usually grabbed from venture capitalists and basically companies that thought anything internet is going to make money. So let's invest like crazy in it right now. So you saw these companies that basically had a ton of money from venture capitalists. They were burning through my, most of them had no real business plan that made sense. Mm -hmm. Certainly not from a profit standpoint at all. And some of these companies essentially actually made it to the point that they actually had IPOs and got money from stockholders. Thankfully, a lot of them didn't get money from stockholders. But regardless, the same thing happened. Everything burst in 2000. A lot of these companies bombed. It's just you have to look back. And while, yes, you know, obviously websites have proven to be successful, have proven to be a source of revenue for many companies – it's just the fact that there was this period of so many dot-com companies launching these websites, basically bilking investors, and totally bombing, totally bombing. You have to look at it as a technological flop, but maybe it's less a technological flop and more it's the fact that it's, it, it's human flop because everyone was so excited that they forgot that the number one rule of business in any business is to make a profit and sustain yourself. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, and the one I, I pulled up was um, uh, ourbeginning.com uh, during this whole period. Spent $5 million for a commercial on the Super Bowl. How, wow. $5 million. And, and what, did they, what did they do? Do you, do you remember what, what did, they did? This, I believe this was an ancestry site at the time. Oh, okay. It, wow! I, another bomb, another horrible in- bomb. Um, and again, five million dollars that that company didn't really have. It was, it was grabbing it from investors and whatnot. It just so I just wanted to include the whole dot com bubble as a flop. Maybe not so much a technological flop. Maybe it's more a human flop. But obviously, it's technology. So I just thought it would it would be a cool entry to throw in here on the list. Well, you know, one of the worst uh, companies for really just putting it over on investors Amazon now in hindsight it's 2020 and you can tell I'm being a little bit facetious as I say this but let me paint a picture for you about how much money was going into these companies and how risky um, the situation was and and the best way to look at uh, that time period is to look at who are the few companies that made it through so Amazon founded in uh, 1994 right they go public with an IPO. I'm I'm trying to this is if you hear me clicking around, this is what I've been doing. I'm trying to find when they had their IPO. I want to say it was nineteen ninety seven, give or take a year. Let's call it ninety six or ninety seven, somewhere in that time frame. So two to three years ish after opening. Now here's here's where I'm saying that these companies were high risk, potentially extreme reward when they panned out. Amazon.com did not have its first profitable quarter until 2001. That means it went as a publicly traded company longer losing money 
than it had existed from founding to becoming a publicly traded company. That is just mind-boggling. A company like Amazon.com could not start today or at most any other part or, or, or time in modern history. That's the type of value that people saw in the web and in the larger internet as the web was giving access um, to the internet for the average person. But I mean, you almost have to think, if I were a venture capitalist at that time, would I put millions of dollars in to a company that's losing millions per quarter just in this off chance of getting you know, to the Amazon.coms of the world? That's that's kind of scary. That is scary. And I want to, I want to throw in a correction here. Our beginning was not ancestry. It was the wedding planning site that bobbed. Oh, wedding planning, which, which, and just for, oh. for kicks, um, do you know, and I looked it up just now because I was curious, do you know who owns our beginning.com now? Who, who owns it now? Yeah. I have no idea. A Seattle daycare company. <laughs> Oh, listen, this is okay. I started with a, uh, you know, a broken heart talking about Microsoft's mobile strategy, but now I have another broken heart and a lot of people do too, because what are some of the domain names that you've had that you've registered or, you know, that you've let go and somebody's turned it into something great. This is that in reverse of, we have this great idea and we're going to get millions in venture capital and even angel investments. And now it's a daycare. Yep. That's what it is. It's you know, it's the equivalent of you know somebody built a, a beautiful you know resort and then it got turned into you know a warehouse for wigs or something like that. Hey, why not? You gotta yeah. you gotta store those things somewhere. So you know, there's so many things obviously left on my list. Um, I think it Mine just too, makes yeah. sense. This is this is going to be a, a two part episode. Uh, we're gonna have to come back and do more of these technological flops and blunders because. I guess we could say for every success, there's always at least a dozen failures that we can talk about. You know, I'm with you here. I've got so much left on my list as well that I think your idea of a two-parter is going to be warranted. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.